Hi everyone, welcome to Northview. My name is Thalia, I'm one of the care pastors on staff. Wherever you're watching us from, welcome here. We're so thankful to have you with us. It's the Mother's Day weekend, so happy Mother's Day. Our children's ministry has prepared a cute little video for all the moms. You can check it out on social media. We also recognize that for some, Mother's Day can be painful and difficult, and we want to be sensitive to that. So as a church, we're praying that the presence of Jesus will comfort you, and that the Church of God, the family of God, will surround you with support and prayer. Please feel free to contact the care team, care at northview.org. And if you have kids in the house, you know the drill. Feel free to check out the children's ministry video. I hear they have puppets this week. Amazing. my God! Today we want to highlight the newsletter. You can go to the main page, northview.org, and click on the button that says Newsletter. Once a week on Fridays, you'll get an update about all kinds of things that are happening at Northview. We're thankful for the music team leading us today. Let's join them in worship by singing together. I need 
We're continuing on in our series called Storms with Pastor Jeff. So if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, fill up your coffees, and let's get ready to learn. The late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul told one of the worst uh, stories, most difficult stories I've ever read to begin one of his books. He told about how his, his daughter had lost uh, her first child. This is how he recorded it. He said, I, I had just pulled my car into the garage and stepped out of it when the door to the kitchen opened and my daughter, Sherry, appeared. Her face was ashen. And there was a look of horror in her eyes. She rushed into my arms, blurting out the words, Oh, Daddy, my baby is dead. I held her against my chest as she sobbed and sobbed. She was in, in the ninth month of her pregnancy and had just returned from a checkup with her obstetrician. He couldn't detect a heartbeat. As gently as he could, he explained what that meant. Her unborn child had died in the womb. The following morning, Sherry was admitted to the hospital. Her doctor induced contractions. And she quickly went into labor, knowing that her child would be stillborn. The practice of the hospital in such cases is to follow through with the procedures of an otherwise normal birth. So when the baby, a beautiful little girl, was born, she was cleaned, measured, weighed, and had her footprint recorded in ink. And then she was handed to her mother. Sherry cuddled the baby for several minutes and then handed her to her husband, and after a few moments, I was permitted to hold my granddaughter in my arms. Sherry and her husband, Tim, named the child Alicia. She was buried with a regular funeral service attended by our family and our pastor. We stood by the grave and wept together as we committed her body to the earth and her soul to our Heavenly Father. Every woman who has delivered a stillborn baby knows the devastation it brings to the heart. Who can experience such a thing without crying to heaven and asking why? It's normal to wonder where God is in such circumstances. My hope, of course, is that you've never experienced something that devastating. Uh, my fear is that you have. And in those moments, I'm, I'm quite sure you've done what I've done, and, and that is what R.C. Sproul's daughter did. Ask the question, why is this happening? Why do these sorts of things happen to people, especially those people who follow Christ, who love God, you'd think that there would be a special measure of kindness to them, maybe. How about just kindness to all of us? If God has the power to stop these things from happening, which of course most of us affirm that he does, why wouldn't he do it? And why, when we ask the question, why, does he so often not answer? I mean, it seems like what we're getting from heaven is some grand silence. The prayers bounce off the ceiling. What are, we, what are we to do with the commonness of this experience among all of us? What are we to do with the questions that plague us? We want answers and we receive none. If only we had an audience with the Almighty God. And if only we could have, have a moment, uh, a spot where we could ask him our questions and he could give us the answers. There's a guy in the history of the world who actually had that opportunity. His name is Job. If you don't know much about the Bible, the, the book of Job is quite famous. I'm sure you've probably heard his name before in passing perhaps by reading a book when you were in high school or whatever. But if you are a Christian, you know the story of Job. 
He was one of those guys who was faithful and kind and generous and seemed to be walking with God rightly, but lost everything in the manner of, honestly, moments. And the rest of the book really tries to deal with the question of what is he supposed to do about this? How is he supposed to think about it? So what I want to do today is I actually want to walk through this story. We're going to try to cover the entire book of Job in the next few minutes. I want to walk through it, give you the grand picture of what happens in the book of Job. And then I want to zero in on Job 42, verses 1 to 6. And in that passage there, I think that we learned three things about God and our suffering. I'll explain the three when we get there. But first, let's, let's look at the story. So, here's how, here's how Job goes. It begins with Job being described as a wealthy and very faithful man. I mean, his faithfulness to God was, was remarkable among all the citizen, citizenship of his region. What you have in Job is you have a, have a guy who, uh, whose family gets together regularly. He's got kids. They get together for feasts regularly. And Job, in the mornings after those feasts, in the mornings just in case his kids had sinned, he offers sacrifices on their behalf. I mean, he's really concerned with their standing before God and his standing before God. There's no more noble person in all the world, we, we learn early on, than, than Job. And he catches the eye of God. And the scene actually shifts to heaven. After Job's situation is described on earth, the scene shifts to heaven. And there's this really fascinating picture that's, that's drawn. The angels and Satan actually come before the presence of, of God. Not sure how that works or why it's that way, but they, they come before the presence of God. And God says to Job, or says to Satan, have you, have you noticed Job? He's a remarkable guy. And Satan's response is, look, the only reason that Job follows you is because you coddle him. You've build, built actually a fence of protection around him, a hedge, so that nothing bad can happen to him. If something bad were to happen to him, if he were to lose the things he has, if the coddling stopped, he would curse you to your face, God. The Lord Almighty responds to that by saying, hmm, I'll take that bet. And he permits Satan to go and to trouble Job, trouble Job's things, not trouble Job personally, like in his body, but he can take away from Job anything. And so what you read is that. In Job 1, verse 13, here's how Satan does it. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing, with the donkeys feeding beside them. And when the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. We presume perhaps lightning or something like that. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels, killed your servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting at their oldest brother's home, and suddenly... Powerful wind, a whirlwind, swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides, and the house collapsed. And all your children, Job, are dead. In fact, I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. I mean, pure devastation in the matter of seconds. One after another, after another, after another. Job, you've lost your land. Job, you've lost your servants. Job, you've lost your property. Job, you've lost uh, everything that you have. And ultimately, Job, you've lost your kids. What would you do? What would you do in that moment? 
Here's what Job did. Job 1, verse 20, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief. And then he shaved his head and fell on the ground to worship, (laughs) to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. So in all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Remarkable. He worships. Well, we scan now back up to heaven for scene number two in the heavenly courts. Again, Satan is coming along and the angels and they're going before God. And God almost seems like he wants to taunt Satan a little bit. Hey, you see Job, he's a pretty remarkable man. And even though you, you, you did what you did to him, he didn't turn away from me. In fact, he worshiped. So I'm pretty much winning the bet, yes? Satan says rubbish. The only reason that Job actually loves you is because you haven't let me touch his body. You have not let me hurt him. People freak out when they have pain in their their bodies. It's the thing they can't handle more than anything else. And so if you let me hurt him, physically hurt him, he will turn on you and curse you to your face. And the Lord says, I'll take that bet. So Satan is sent off and this is what happens in chapter 2, verse 7. Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. It's a quite a remarkable scene, isn't it? He broke a, a piece, a pot, and now he's just, the best thing he can do is to scrape his body now with the shard of pottery. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. I completely understand her perspective here. Everything that you have, Job, has been taken away. Our kids have been taken away. And now your physical wellness has been taken away. Can't you get the hint, Job? Curse God. Just die. But, verse 10, Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything, anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Faithful, 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 faithful. And then, Job's friends enter the picture. Uh, There are three of them at first, and they start by just sitting on the floor with their suffering buddy. In Job 2, verse 11, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Remember the boils and scraping with pottery. Imagine you wouldn't be able to recognize him much. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes, probably in solidarity, and they threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job. For they saw that his suffering was too great for words. I've often said that this is their best moment. It all goes downhill from here, but in this one week where they're sitting on the ground with Job, in solidarity with his pain and recognizing the difficulty that this man has had given all the circumstances around him, they don't say anything because there are moments in our lives where you don't say anything. Where all the answers that are rolling around in your head that you learn in theology class are not the things that you start with. You don't come to the bedside of a dying man and say to his family, well, here's my five theological points for why it is that the Lord allows suffering in the world. The point one, you, you don't do this. Can you imagine if somebody did that? 
I imagine some of you have had that situation before where somebody shows up and they want to quote the Bible to you, which, of course, is wonderful and fantastic, but not yet. First, we just need to sit. The weekends, they don't give any theological answers, these friends of Job. And then they start. And here's their argument. Essentially, they believe that the wicked suffer and the righteous are rewarded. That's the way it works in the world. If you're a bad guy, you get bad things. If you're a good guy, you get good things. And so if Job is getting bad things, this reasonably means that he's a bad guy. He must have done something wrong to incur the wrath of God that is now being displayed in his life. So, they say things like Job 22, verse 4. It's because you're so, is it because you're so pious, holy, righteous, that he accuses you, God accuses you, and brings judgment against you? No, it's because of your wickedness, Job. There's no limit to your sins. For example, you, you must have lent money to your friend and demanded clothing as security. Yes, you stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. You, you probably think the land belongs to the powerful and only the privileged have a right to it. You must have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. That's why you're surrounded by traps and tremble from sudden fears. That's why you can't see in the darkness and the waves of water cover you. Job, just look back across your life. Can't you see all the ways that you have wronged God? You surely must be able to find them because if they're not there, then God is unjust in doing this and he's not unjust. You're unjust. Wicked people get wickedness. Righteous people get righteousness. You're getting wickedness. Therefore, you're wicked. Job, however, when he hears this line, is basically apoplectic. He's, he is so strident that this is not the case. You can have a look at my life and you will see that there is nothing that I've done wrong, nothing to deserve any of this. He believes God, in fact, is treating him unjustly and he wants to have an audience. He wants to have a moment where he can tell God his case, where he can make his argument before him. I want to call God to court. Job 31, verse 35, if, if only someone would listen to me, says Job, look, I'll sign my name to my defense. Let that the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I'd wear it like a crown, for I would tell him exactly what I've done. I would come before him like a prince. Not as a coward, not as... A slave, I would come before him as a prince. That's how much honor he would give me that I'm due. I've, I've not wronged him, and therefore by wronging me, he has done me a great injustice. God, where are you? I want my moment with you. There's a book that was written a number of years ago, and the premise of it is, based, is, is this. Father loses his, his daughter, and he has questions about why. He yells out to God, and he eventually finds that he has a meeting with God in a shack. What transpires in that shack, the discussion that uh, this man has with God, is, is very different, quite honestly, than what Job gets from, from the Lord Yahweh. What Job gets is answers out of a whirlwind. Remember, a whirlwind is the very thing that came and struck the four corners of the house of his children and buried them. And God now, who's in charge of the wind and the waves, God now is going to talk to Job so you get in Job 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. 
Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. You put me on the, on the stand, Job? In fact, it's the other way around. Let me ask you some questions first and you answer me. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. If you know so much, who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barren Barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, this far and no farther shall you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Joe, where were you? Where were you when, when I made all these mighty things where I control the most powerful things, the sea in all the world, those powerful things? I say, you can come this far and no farther shall you come. When the stars that you see in the sky during the evening, I hung them. Where were you? If you know so much. In fact, God actually becomes sarcastic in this. Job 38 verse 19, where does light come from? And where does darkness go? Can you, can you take each to its home, Job? Do you know how to get there? Oh, but of course you do, for you know all this. You were born before it was all created, and you were so very experienced, Job. In fact, the questions just barrage him. One after another, after another, after another. Job wants to tap out. No kidding. I mean, he, he, he wants to... Get, to get out of the ring. He, he called down an opponent that he was not prepared to face. And you expect maybe God to let up, but he doesn't. He just keeps, he just keeps coming. In the last set of questions, God emphasizes his power over what's called the Leviathan, which is, which is a, a sea creature thought to be a god in the ancient world. You know, people didn't know it was underneath the surface of the sea and they didn't have scuba gear, so they couldn't get down there and figure out what whales looked like or what crocodiles looked like. And so they thought that all sorts of crazy, unmanageable creatures were down there. The most chaotic animals in the world, the ones that can't be tamed, they're the ones who live in the sea. In fact, sea is a symbol of chaos in the ancient world. But here's what Job 41 says. When God starts talking about Leviathan, the one who lives in the deep, he says, can you catch Leviathan with a hook and put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it with a rope through the nose or pierce its jaw with a spike? Will it beg you for mercy or implore you for pity? Will it agree to work for you, be, to be your slave for life? Can you make it a pet, like a bird, or give it to your little girls to play with? Because that's what I can do, Job. The most unruly, chaotic creatures of the world, I can strap a leash around them and give it to my little girl to go for a walk. They answer to me, Job. How about you, Job? Who is this that questions my wisdom with words without knowledge? Seventy questions later, over seventy. And I imagine at the end of them there's just silence. And after the silence, Job finally responds in Job 42 verses 1 to 6. So what does a guy say when he gets his meeting with the Almighty? When you shake your fist at heaven and say, where are you, God? And God says, oh, I'm right here. Let's have a conversation. When God lays out his case, what is, what is Job's response? And in, in it, I think what you're going to find is a three lessons regarding God and our suffering. 
They're not exhaustive. They're not the only thing the Bible has to say about God and our suffering, but they are significant. Three things that I, I think you can't deny. And that if you would own, I think your heart would be, would be well. At least for now. So here they are. Here's the first. The first lesson is that God, God is sovereign over our suffering. You see that in Job 42, verse 1 and 2. Job replied to the Lord. I know. These are the first words out of the guy's mouth after the 70 plus questions that God asks him. After he wants to tap out. These are the first words. I know that you can do anything. No one can stop you. Like if there's one thing that I have learned from the questions, Lord, it's that you can do anything. And, no, and nobody can stop you. Now that's an interesting statement because it's very different than the way that a lot of people try to answer the question of suffering from kind of a Christian view these days. People are, are troubled, rightfully so, with the fact that there is a good God, a sovereign God, who exists in the world, or they say that he, he exists, and yet we have suffering in the world, and it seems like that sovereign and good God, if he was really good and sovereign, would stop it. He would care enough to stop it, he would have power enough to stop it, and he would stop it. So why doesn't he stop it? So people start coming up with all sorts of philosophical reasons, theological reasons for why it is that God might not stop it, because they can't live with that tension. So what they say is something like, uh, well, perhaps it's because, it's because God doesn't know the future. I mean, he could know the future, but he's chosen in order to have a real relationship with human beings that he just doesn't know what's going to come around the bend. I mean, he's a good guesser. He's pretty smart. He's been around for a long time. And so he can kind of figure it out. But every once in a while, there's a curveball that's thrown and he swings and misses. And he steps out of the batter's box and he says, hmm, never seen that pitch before. Now he learns quickly and he's able to adjust to get to his desired location. But he's still surprised by some things. The people who say this is God was surprised by the Holocaust. God was surprised by all the difficulties and suffering that you've experienced. Because if he weren't surprised by it, if he had the power, he would stop it. The only thing that explains that he doesn't stop it is the fact that he doesn't have the power because he doesn't have the knowledge. Maybe the best way to explain this viewpoint is to maybe do it in an image. Um, my family and I, during this crisis, have been playing a goofy game. Uh, it's one that we've played before, but we've never been sufficiently bored to do it. It's what we call it the driving game. We get in the car, and at every stop sign, at every light, at every time you have to come to a full stop in the car, you actually have one person has to call right, left, or straight. And once their decision is over, the next person gets to go right, left, or straight. Right, left, or straight. Right, left, or straight. You can choose to go down one road prior to the stop sign if you want. If you say, I want to go down that road, you can. You, you pick a, a location around town beforehand, you write it on a piece of paper, you fold it, you put it in a little pot, and then you try to get to your location by interacting with the other people who are turning left, right, and straight. So you have a destination in mind. You want to get to that elementary school, you want to get to that church, you want to get to that sports field, but you're you're playing against a bunch of other people who've got their own will, and they all want to go to another location. And so you have to be clever and figure out how, what different roads through Abbotsford can get me there. And if you turn left here, what's my second option then? This is the picture, I think, that a lot of people have of God. He's just part of the game. I mean, you're our free moral agent, and so you get to make choices, and he gets to make choices, and then you get to make choices, and then I get to make choices. And God is always like, you know, trying to jockey for position. He's pretty good at the game, and so eventually he gets you there. But it might take a lot longer, right? You might end up in Vancouver instead of Chilliwack at some point, but you'll eventually get to the, to the Costco on Sumas Way. The question I have, though, is does, does the book of Job, what we just read, does it portray God like that? Does it portray God as being at the whim of his creation? Does it portray God as somebody who doesn't know what he's doing? Does it portray God 
as someone who's learning stuff along the way? I, I would submit no. The answer is actually, actually not. Satan needs God's permission and can only go as far as he's allowed. God commands the seas to stop wherever he determines. The, the Leviathan itself is on a leash. There's this guy named Elihu in the story, right before Job answers the whirlwind, right before God confronts him. Elihu says these words. He's a young guy. He hasn't said anything because the three older guys have been peppering Job with why Job's wrong. And finally, Elihu comes through, and he's got some good things to say. He kind of reflects the perspective that God has in much of this. Job 37, verse 6, he talks about God. He says he, he directs the snow to fall on the earth and tells the rain to pour down. In verse 10, God's breath sends the ice, freezing wide expanses of water. He loads the clouds with moisture and they flash with his lightning. The clouds churn about at his direction. They do whatever he commands throughout the earth. He makes these things happen either to punish people or to show his unfailing love. No, there's no question that God has authority and power over the world. It's no wonder that Job's first words after facing the whirlwind and all the questions are, you can do anything. I know you can do anything and no one can stop you. So God does as he pleases, which means that no matter what you say about our suffering, there's one thing you can't say about it. And that is that it is outside of his power or providence. Somehow, it exists with God. The objection, then, is pretty clear. Why? Why does it exist with God? Because I don't see a reason. I don't see a reason for a lot of the things that happen around us. People sometimes ask me that. Why do you think this happened? I don't know. I think people are fools when they go on the TV and say the reason that COVID-19 came was because of this other thing that has happened with our president, with our prime minister. It's always somebody's least favorite thing that's going on in the world that they point to. But why? Why does all of this happen? Which leads us to the second reflection that Job has when he speaks in verse 3 of Job 42. Basically, he says that God has reasons for our suffering. It's not arbitrary. God has reasons for our suffering. Verse 3, you asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. I questioned you, Lord. I called you down for a, for a debate. Questioned your wisdom in your words with words without knowledge. But I, na I now know. I didn't know what I was talking about. I, didn't, I don't know all these things. So, some, there are some things that are far too wonderful for me to know. Do you know, I've talked to doctors from time to time around the place. Uh, I think it would be hard to be a, a, a pediatrician these days, a, a, um, an internist, any, any kind of doctor these days. And the reason I say that is because of the presence of WebMD or, in, or the internet or Google or YouTube. I mean, seriously, I imagine on YouTube you could find out how to do a surgery on someone to remove something. Spleen, appendix, I don't know. But because there's such readiness of information, here, what you have oftentimes is a doctor who's spent, you know, the last 40, 50 years doing this particular procedure, diagnosing this particular thing that you now have. You go away, you look it up, look at three websites, come back and say, you know, doctor, I don't know if you know what you're talking about because uh, I researched and this blog by this guy who lives in Odessa, Texas says, bleh. And the doctor's now in a situation where he's trying to be kind to you and saying, well, that's an interesting view, but it's not. They want to be kind, but in their heart, they must want to say, man, you, got, you should probably stay in your lane here. I've been doing this a long time. So my knowledge about it is really big, and your knowledge about it is really little. And while I want to lead you to understand better about it, there are some things in this discussion 
that are just too wonderful for you to know at this point. Isn't that really what's happening here? God's like, look, Job, my knowledge is this big. My wisdom is this grand. I see the end from the beginning. I know where we're headed here. I planned it all out. And there are reasons outside of the little tiny view hole you have that makes sense of all this. Isn't it possible that I could have reasons for it that you know nothing about? If I'm big enough to stop it, Job, aren't I big enough also to have reasons for it that you know nothing about? My son, Ethan, um, when he was little, used to uh, really balk at being given medicine, like cherry, um, the cherry medicine for coughs and stuff like that, where we lived. They, they didn't have a whole lot of choices. You know, nowadays you can get it in grape flavor and you can get it in, you know, uh, you can put it in a Mr. Freezy. Nowadays you, they make it so that kids can really, can really accept it. But where we lived, that was not the case. It tasted awful. I mean, I had to plug my nose and, and drink it, and then I'd have to, you know, have a fudgesicle afterwards immediately because I had to get the taste out of my mouth. But when he was little, he would just drink, he would just have to drink it. And honestly, the kid would be gagging all over the room. He'd be crying. He'd start yelling at us, what are you doing? Now listen, I totally get his point of view. It tastes awful. And what he's thinking to himself is, why are you putting me through this difficult moment? I don't see any reason for it. I don't have any evidence the thing that you're giving me is actually going to help my real problem. My real problem may be a cough, and now you're giving me this nasty stuff that goes down. Like, I don't see that as being the case. He's too little to, be, to have it explained to him. And you could. I could start interacting with him about the finer nuances of pharmaceuticals, and here's how this is going to work. And... But it's too big for him at that moment. It's knowledge that's too wonderful for him to know. But it doesn't mean I don't have a reason for giving it. It doesn't mean that there's not a purpose in it. And isn't, there, isn't that the case? Just because there's things going on in your life and my life that we don't see straight, that we don't understand, really is just a testimony about our limited view, not the limited power of God, not the limited purpose of God. If he's big enough to stop it, he's also big enough to have reasons for it that you currently know nothing about. Now, many of us at this point would be like, yeah, okay, maybe God has his reasons, but that doesn't change the pain I have. How do I, how do I live here with the pain? I mean, all the theology and all the other reasons, like, how do I live? How do I wake up tomorrow without tears in my eyes and a constant groaning in my heart that this will never get better. Well, I think verses four to six help. And I think it's the third thing that Job learns about God. And that is that God is ultimately the answer to our suffering. Verse four, you said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. And I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I, I was wrong, Lord. It's interesting about this whole book is at the end of the story, you don't get God saying, okay, now that I've asked you all the questions and you've confessed that you don't really know, let me just let you in on the secret. There was this scene in heaven and Satan came and we had a bet and I was banking on you, Job, and I knew that you were going to do this because I'm a sovereign God and I worked this out. And so he, didn't, he doesn't, doesn't say that. Doesn't give him the background. Job finishes his life not knowing what you and I know from the beginning of the book. Not knowing the purpose for it. So what does he get in the end that gives him solace? And the answer is he gets God. I'd, I'd heard of you before, but now I see you. Now I know you. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. You know, 
ultimately that's the real point here, that God really does ask us to trust him in the midst of a lot of these things and stop focusing on the questions so that we can instead focus on the one we're asking them to. He's, he's great and he's mighty and he's good and he has a track record with you and with me. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what's true about you, that before the foundations of the world, God knew your name. God planned from all eternity to call you out, out of your sin, away from the wickedness you were caught in, out of your deadness. He called you out, gave you eyes to see. Your heart was warmed toward him. You believed in faith what he said. And, and God started a, a mighty journey with you that you're in right now. He's sanctifying you. He's making you holy. He is cutting the edges off of your character and forming Christ in you. He promises he'll keep doing this. And even though you and I, we go astray here and there, God continues. He chases us down. He loves us. And he's promised that he will love us eternally. In fact, you will go to be with him. He will preserve the faith that you think sometimes is so fleeting. And he will keep you. And in 10,000 years, when you're sitting before his throne, and it seems like it's the very first day, you will still have tears in your eyes and joy in your heart because he has always sought you good. He's always had his eye on you. He's always loved you. Your entire life is an example of the track record that God has with you. Even in the moments that you didn't understand it, that grand picture, that grand story, he's working out right now. Can you trust a, a God who gave his son for you like that? Who called you out, paid for your sins all by himself? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for a great message. Let's continue in worship by praying together. Why don't you join me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you love us, that you care about us, that you know every detail of our lives. And we're so thankful that we can come to you in prayer, not on our own merit, but through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we have all kinds of needs and requests. Lord, you know the storms in our life. And so we pray, first of all, that you would heal us, that you would heal us physically and emotionally that you would help us in our relationships, that you would help us to be willing to forgive, to apologize, and to do the hard work of reconciliation. Lord, we need you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us in our jobs, and our schooling, and our businesses. We need wisdom for the next steps. We need energy and strength to do the tasks ahead of us. Lord, we're so thankful that you care about us. Thank you, Lord, for the churches in our community. Today, we wanna to pray for Arnold Community Church. Lord, we're so thankful for them. And we pray now that you would be their comfort and their support, that they would care for each other well, and that they would feel the support of the whole community during this time. Lord, thank you also for our tithes and our offerings. Thank you for our generous church. And Lord, would you help us as a church to use this money wisely for your honor and glory. And we ask all these things in your amazing name and all God's people say, amen. Another way we worship is to give of our tithes and offerings because God has so richly blessed us. If you're visiting here today, there's no obligation to give. If you're part of our Northview Church home, we would encourage you to keep giving generously and cheerfully. And we want to express a heartfelt thanks to those of you who have continued to give. The work of Northview has continued locally and globally, and we are so thankful. There are many ways to give at Northview. You can text to the number on your screen, you can go to the main page, northview.org, and click on the button that says Give. Or if you prefer to write checks, you can send them to our main office on Downs Road or drop them off in person during office hours. My name is Todd Wickens, and we are going to sing Be Glorified. Well, I wrote this song um, about two years ago. I had some friends that had been going through a bunch of things, things that would be unbearable to most of us, but yet, they relied on the faithfulness of the Lord. They talked about it often, and I, I found it inspirational, and I wanted to write about it. 
So that's what started the song. Even though we're hurting and all these things, we have a great God who's in control of it all, and we need to praise Him. This song has become way more personal. Um, my father died back in January. This song kind of came back to me, and I realized, you know, even in this pain, um, a great witness is to take this now and go worship the Lord. The main part of it of being glorified, like the Lord being glorified in absolutely everything we do. And that includes when we're down and when we're out. And uh, what a witness that is to the people around us.
Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we start a new series on the book of Esther, and our team is busy preparing devotionals and reading so that you can get prepared for this new series. We want to send you into the week with a blessing from God's Word. It's from Revelation 7, verse 12, and it says this, Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.